Now you need to answer, I'm the redeemed in Christ. Amen. There's Kathy. Good to see you. They get back there sometimes and talk and they forget the time. But that's all right. That's good. I'm not getting on to her. Say hi. Okay. I'm glad to see her. I thought maybe she went home. No, I'm just kidding. All right. Now, who do you think you are? Uh, I tell you, a lot of Christians never do really know who they are in Christ. It's amazing. And yet, knowing who you are in Christ uh, is something that will change your life. You'll never see yourself the same again. Uh, Ephesians is so full of things. Let's, uh, let's look now. Let's go ahead and begin. And I want to do a little background, of course, lay the groundwork and tell you a little bit about Ephesus and the Ephesian church. And then we'll get into the first three verses tonight. And after that, uh, we will move at a much faster clip through the text. But I got to give you some background. So let's do it. Ephesians has been called Paul's crowning work, the quintessence of Paulinism. Doesn't that sound fancy? It is both a literary gem and a treasure of spiritual nuggets. How many of you can say, I've always loved Ephesians? How many of you can say already that Ephesians has changed your life at some time or another? How about Ephesians 6 on warfare? How about Ephesians on marriage? I mean, it's so full of things. All right. Those who study the book of Ephesians are going to glean some very important understandings of Christ and his church as well as lessons for life. Now, before we get into the book, let's see what we can learn about it. Paul founded the church at Ephesus over a period of nearly three years. It took him around three years to get it established. You read about that in Acts 19, and I give you the verses up there. He did it from about 52 to 55 A.D. Now, he visited with the church elders on the beach at Miletus on his way to Jerusalem. And you remember, it was to the Ephesian elders he said, you're probably never going to see me again. And he said, I encourage you to be watchful because I know that as soon as I'm gone, grievous wolves are going to come in and not spare the flock. And he warned them. And he went on to tell them, I have not ceased to warn you day and night. So you read those words that he spoke to the Ephesian elders when he was leaving and headed to Jerusalem, where he would be imprisoned, and um, you see that Paul's ministry, really a lot of it, was a ministry of warning. He warned the saints. He warned them to watch out for the enemy. He warned them to watch out for false prophets, false teachers. He warned them about those grievous wolves that would come in um, from amongst them, that wolves would rise up within the flock. You know, Satan goes to church. I'm going to say that again. Satan goes to church. You say, Pastor Jeff, that sounds weird, almost sacrilegious. Well, it's just true. Satan goes to church. Don't you remember when Jesus walked into the synagogue and it says that there was a man in there and a demon rose up in him and Jesus cast the demon out right there in church? Satan goes to church. Paul said, wolves are going to rise up from amongst you, and they're not going to spare the flock. So he warned them. So he had a, he had a ministry of warning. 
He warned all the time. So, and how, how often do we hear warning in our day from, from pulpits? Not near enough. Well, there needs to be some warning going on. Amen? Now, in Jerusalem, Paul was arrested about 57 A.D. and imprisoned first in Caesarea from about 57 to 59 A.D. And then he was under house arrest in Rome about 60 to 62 A.D. And uh, he probably died no later than 63 to 65 A.D., likely earlier. And, and how did he die? He was beheaded. And when they beheaded Paul, I'm going to tell you what I feel about this. When they beheaded Paul, they killed the greatest man on the planet. They lost the greatest mind, the greatest theologian, the greatest missionary, the greatest preacher, the greatest teacher, and in my humble opinion, the most Christ-like man on the planet. But they took his head off. Thank God he wrote. Amen? Now, Paul obviously wrote Ephesians from prison. Uh, but prison where? Well, we can't be sure, but likely either Caesarea or Rome. And most scholars date the letter of, to the Ephesians around 60 to 62 A.D., from Rome. So he wrote this very, very shortly before he was martyred. Now the letter seems to have been written to the church at Ephesus, though it doesn't directly address problems from that church, as do some of the other letters. You read his other letters and he, he, he talks right to the problems going on in that church and names it. But he doesn't do that in Ephesians. It's more general. Ephesians seems more like a tract than a personal letter. And it was probably intended as a circular letter to be read in the house of, or in the house churches of Ephesus and Western Asia Minor. See, they didn't have email. They didn't have snail mail. They didn't have, they just would send a letter out and it had to be carried from church to church by faithful Christians. So he might send out a letter that gets to you six months later. Because he didn't have any of that. You know, today I did a little Facebook posting, and within three hours, it had gone to over 500 people. Now, I got to tell you, I like that. If I wrote a letter and it, <laughs> it took forever just to get to a little group of people, that would be discouraged. But that's what happened. They would send out letters with the understanding that it would be carried from church to church, and the leaders of that church would, would stand up and read it to the congregants. And that's, that's the way they, they did the letters back in Paul's day. Now, Ephesus was founded about 1100 B.C., going all the way back to the beginning of Ephesus. That's a long ways back, 1100 B.C., over a millennium before Jesus. Estimates of its population in the first century where, where Paul wrote and where he lived and when he lived begin at a quarter million inhabitants and go up from there. So it was a large, thriving city, Ephesus. It was famous for its temple to the goddess Artemis, Diana of Ephesus, an idol, a huge structure made of marble, 220 by 425 feet at its base. That's huge. Supported by beautiful pillars and rising to a height of 60 feet, considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, but you know what? It was an idol. 
And Ephesus was steeped in idolatry. And idolatry opens the door to the devil. And so you have this city with this gigantic statue of of an idol. And so the whole city was given over to idolatry. And so there was a spiritual darkness over Ephesus. The city has been studied by archaeologists since around 1895, and uh, that work continues. And some of the important buildings present during Paul's ministry, catch this, there was a huge theater on a hillside that could seat 24,000 people. And you thought only we had stadiums. 24,000 people. And we know that later, when they martyred Christians, they would martyr them with stadiums like that full and everybody cheering as wild animals tore Christians apart. That's where they had gone. So here you had this huge theater, 24,000 seats, and you can read about it in Acts 19.29. And then there was also an impressive town hall, a thriving commercial market. There was baths and gymnasiums and a medical school and a stadium 751 feet long, which is a quarter of a mile, 750 feet long stadium, 98 feet wide, built during Nero's reign. Now, you know what? That almost sounds like something from today. No wonder Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. Okay? So Ephesus was happening. If you were a worldly person, then then Ephesus would have been one of the places you wanted to go visit or maybe you wanted to live because it was a happening, thriving city full of uh, free enterprise and things to do, places to go, people to see. And besides the cult of Artemis or uh, Diana, there is evidence of various other mystery religions. And there was the practice of magic. You read about it in Acts 19.19. There was worship of Egyptian gods as well as a devotion to a large number of other deities. So, So do you see that when Paul went there, how the burden would have been on him to preach the gospel in this city. I mean, they were in witchcraft. They, they worshipped idols. Uh, they, they were in sorcery. They did all these different things, worshipping Egyptian gods. They were steeped in spiritual darkness and blindness. No wonder he said to them, we battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in heavenly places, because he saw such satanic activity in Ephesus. We know that a Jewish synagogue existed in Ephesus because of Acts 19, verse 8. But they haven't found it yet, archaeologists, but we know that it was there. The Jewish community possessed citizenship. They were exempted from military service. They were granted freedom to practice their religion according to their traditions. But there's a real question whether Paul's letter to the Ephesians was really intended for the church at Ephesus exclusively, and let me explain that in verse 1, the phrase in Ephesus is missing in several early reliable Greek manuscripts. It's not there. Probably the explanation is the original letter was intended, as we talked about a moment ago, uh, as a sort of a circular letter for the church at Ephesus, as well as others in Asia Minor, to be read and then sent on. So it may not have been aimed only or exclusively at Ephesus. Since Ephesus was the best-known church in the area, uh, the copy it made um, would be the source of most of the copies of the letter made for others, probably inserting its own name in the first sentence. Now, 
The subjects in the letter don't seem to be tied to any particular situation in Ephesus as much as just churches in general. Of course, John mentions Ephesus when he talks about the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And Jesus reads the mail of that church in Ephesus and directly addresses this church. But anyway, we're going to still call it the the letter to the Ephesians, even though it might have been meant to be only circular and not only for them. Jesus cared enough to, to talk directly to them. Now, why was the letter written? Since Paul's founding of the churches in the area around Ephesus, believers seem to have won many Gentiles to whom Paul's letter is now directed. There were converts from a Hellenistic environment of mystery religions, magic, astrology. And by the way, folks, do you know that when I read things like uh, mystery religions and uh, magic and astrology, America's full of those things, full of those things. I mean, America is stooped and drenched and saturated and steeped in so much idolatry and really witchcraft and mystery religions and magic that this could be talking to us. They feared the converts, especially the Gentile converts in Ephesus. They feared evil spirits and they weren't sure about Christ's relationship to these forces. And they also needed encouragement to adopt a lifestyle worthy of Christianity because they were being freed from things like drunkenness, sexual immorality, theft, and hatred. And they also may have lacked respect for the Jewish heritage of their faith. So they had a lot of sin. So that's why Paul addresses a lot of things we're going to find in the book to the Ephesians. Now, Paul uses a number of words in Ephesians that would have been familiar to his Gentile Christian readers from their former religions, words like head slash body, fullness, mystery, age, ruler, and so on and so forth. Paul uses these words to demonstrate to his readers that Christ is far above and superior to any hierarchy of gods and spiritual beings. Is he not? Yes, he is. That they are all lesser beings under Jesus Christ. These Ephesian converts need to see that Jesus had power over all the things that they had been involved in and could really set them free. So the language of Ephesians serves an apologetic function, apologetic meaning a defense of the faith for the church that was in a pluralistic society very much like America is right now. Now here's, here's a, a great little summary of Ephesians by Bible scholar F.F. Bruce. He says this, quote, the letter was written to encourage Gentile Christians to appreciate the dignity of their calling with its implication not only for their heavenly origin and destiny, but also for their present conduct on earth as those who were heirs of God and sealed by the Holy Spirit. We're going to see that Ephesians deals with these things, the greatness of God, the exalted Christ, salvation in the present dimension, meaning right now, 
the status of believers in Christ. We're going to be talking about that tonight. The unity of Jew and Gentile. Nobody's better than anybody else. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. The struggle with satanic powers. Anybody struggled with satanic powers in the last year? I'm going to try that one again. If you've struggled with the enemy in the last year, let me see your hand. All right, that makes me feel better. I was feeling alone there. Uh, The ethical obligations of believers, the apostle to the Gentiles, the church. We'll be exploring each of these incredible subjects in our journey through this book, and the structure of Ephesians can be considered in halves. Really, the first three chapters and the second three are different. The first half, chapters 1 through 3, focuses on theological and doctrinal issues. The second half gets real practical. And anytime Paul wrote a letter, he would always deal with theology in the first part and practical application in the last part. So first three chapters, we're going to be looking at some really profound theological truth that's going to rock your world. Now, Ephesians is as inspiring as it is deep. It swells the soul in praise, encourages the mind in understanding. It warms the heart in giving thanks. So as we begin the Bible, this Bible journey through Ephesians, I'm going to encourage you to do something. I want you to immerse yourself in this letter. Uh, morning before last, I read the first five chapters. Just read it through real slow with a pen. And I want to encourage you, you're going through this with us. Uh, tomorrow, start reading through Ephesians. Because the Bible says that you have no need that any man teach you. But the same anointing that you have received who abides in you will teach you all things and bring to your mind all things that Jesus told you. Now, uh, that means that the Holy Spirit, the great teacher of the church, lives inside of you, and he will illuminate this book to you. So open it up in the morning, and let's go through it together, okay? Read it in different translations as well. And there's no excuse for not having different translations because they're on the web. I mean, they're everywhere. Uh, You need to go to Bible Gateway or or, uh, Bible.net or any of those places and see all kinds of different translations. Read it in different translations and get a hold of the bigger picture that Paul is giving us. Now, as you read, let your spirit listen and soak up the truths. Remember what I preached Sunday. Let's Let's say this together. Read wide and read deep. Read wide and read deep and think about what you're reading because you're reading the Word of God. And believe me, it'll reach you and it'll speak to you and it'll change you. Uh, You might also try reading it aloud. Today I read a whole bunch of Psalms aloud and I prayed a bunch of Psalms aloud. Read the Word of God aloud. It'll bless you. Now, as you read Ephesians, I want to encourage you to give priority to prayerfulness rather than just logical analysis. Let God talk to you. How many of you believe when you open up the Bible, God wants to speak to you? How many of you know he will speak to you? So don't just approach it logically. Approach it devotionally. Approach it prayerfully. Say, now, Lord, whatever you want me to get out of this letter that you gave to Paul, you gave through Paul, and it's in your holy Bible, whatever you meant for me to get out of it, speak this to me, Lord, and let me hear you, and he will talk to you. Now, here's what we're going to see Paul's prayer for us is, and uh, it's powerful. He said, that you may know him better. 
That's a constant refrain in Ephesians. I want you to know him better. Anybody in here want to know the Lord better? Well, you know what? Ephesians is going to help us know the Lord better than we know him right now. And that's exciting. When we're done with this, you're going to know the Lord better than you, knew, than you know him tonight. You're going to know him better. He said that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Wow. And then he goes on. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That's a mouthful. And you know what? You'll see that Paul has a real hard time ending a sentence. Comma, comma, comma. And some of his single sentences go for verse after verse after verse after verse. That was a small example right there. All right, let's begin. Chapter 1, verse 1 and through 3. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Read this with me in verse 2, would you, everybody? Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Wow. Amen. That's a mouthful. Now let's look at this. As soon as Paul is finished with the preliminaries of opening the letter, he, he breaks out in, in, in praise. He's praising God immediately. Read it again with me. Praise be to the God who has blessed us. Now, the beginning of Ephesians abundantly proclaims all the blessings that we Christians are blessed with. Uh, God's amazing generosity is on display. He is very, very generous. Now, before we look at the details of these verses, I want to take a look at the big picture. I want you to see uh, the forest before you see the individual trees. In his introduction, here's what he tells us we are. Say with me, in Christ, we are holy and blameless, chosen, adopted as sons and daughters of God, and forgiven. And we have been given knowledge of the mysteries of God, a purpose to live for God's praise, and the Holy Spirit as a foretaste of future glory. Think of the best time you've ever had in God. Think of the richest worship, the strongest you've ever felt His presence. And then realize that is only a tiny, teensy taste of what's coming. The Holy Spirit is a foretaste of future glory. So I'm just going to read those again. What are we? We are in Christ. We are holy and blameless. We are chosen. We are adopted. We are forgiven. And we have been given knowledge of his mysteries, a purpose to live for, the Holy Spirit as a foretaste of future glory. Amen. Now let's look at some details. First, Paul speaks of grace and peace to the saints. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints, turn to your neighbor and say, that's you. Whether or not you feel like it or look like it, you're a saint if you're in Jesus, okay? 
He says to the saints that are in in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm immediately struck by three words, and they are apostle, saints, and faithful. That's who you address it to. Now, apostle is apostolos. And, you know, I've had people tell me, well, I'm an apostle. And I, and I say to them, what does that mean? Well, I'm not sure. I just know I am one. I say, well, what does apostle mean? Why would you call yourself an apostle instead of just a, a Christian? And generally, they're saying that there's somebody way, way up there in the hierarchy of, of the church. But here's the deal. Apostle just means messenger, a delegate, an envoy. It, it, it's talking about a person sent with a specific commission or mission from the verb apostello, which is to send. It's that simple. So an apostle is a sent one. Now, here's what Paul is telling us. He wants us to know for sure that he speaks with apostolic authority that comes directly from Jesus Christ. He didn't just come up with this stuff. I I read Ephesians And I can't believe a human mind thought these things. It's just so lofty. It's so incredible. And so you know that Jesus gave it to him. And all Scripture being inspired by God, he wrote it down as he was born along by the Holy Ghost. But he wants us to understand, I'm an apostle and these are not my words. These are the words of Jesus. It is the words of the Spirit to the church. Ephesians is an incredible revelation of God to the church. So he writes according to God's will. It's not casual communication, but it's to be taken, it's not to be taken just as men, man's word, but as the words of Jesus Christ through Paul. And that's why I tell you, when I open up the Bible, I begin to read it unlike I do any other book. I I open it up with full confidence that it's the Word of God and that I can trust it. If I open up any other book, I know that a man wrote it and it's going to have some mistakes. It may not be exactly right. But when it's the Word of God, I open it up and I make myself totally vulnerable to its truth because I know that it's the Word of God. Do you know that tonight? It's the Word of God. Now, he addresses the letter to saints. The New Testament saints aren't a bunch of people wearing halos. Amen? They are real, fallible people. We saints. The Greek word is hagios. And when it's used of human beings, here's what it means. Consecrated or dedicated to God. Holy. And I've been preaching on this for two Sundays in a row. Sanctified. Set apart for special use. That's what a saint is. Every believer in this room has been purchased by the blood of Christ and immediately upon your salvation, the Holy Ghost began the process of sanctification, setting you aside, pulling you away from the contamination and corruption of the world and setting you aside for his special use. That's all of us. So whether or not you feel like it, like I said a couple of Sundays ago, you are God's special China. You are. 
Sanctification is a lifelong process. Salvation is instantaneous, but sanctification is a process that takes a lifetime. But a saint is somebody consecrated, dedicated, set aside, holy, and given over to the Lord Jesus. There's nothing more wonderful than yielding and surrendering to Jesus Christ. Amen? As we used to surrender our lives to sin, now we surrender our lives to him. Amen? So we're reserved for God and his service. Now, New Testament saints are not holy just because we are perfect, because we're not perfect, never will be. We're holy because we're set apart and dedicated to God. We're holy because we belong to him exclusively. We're holy because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. The Bible says, if any man has not the Spirit of God, he is not his. So not every human being on earth is a child of God, only the redeemed. And that's why you must be born again. Now, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, you are not your own. Can we say that together? I'm not my own. I am not my own. You're not your own. You're his. You were bought at a price. The divine currency of the blood of Jesus. Now, the third word that I noticed in that first verse is faithful. That, that's the Greek word pistos. And the word means trustworthy, faithful, dependable, inspiring of trust or faith. Does that describe you? Let me read those again. Tell me if it describes you. Trustworthy, faithful, dependable, inspiring of trust or faith. Is that you? You know what? Jesus is going to make every one of us trustworthy, faithful, dependable, inspiring of trust or faith. So he calls them faithful saints, saints that are trustworthy, saints that are faithful, saints that are dependable, saints that are committed, saints that are loyal, saints that look like Jesus faithful ones. Then he goes on to describe their location or their relationship status with a very, very important phrase. And you're going to hear this over and over again in Ephesians. In Christ Jesus. Say that with me. In Christ Jesus. Now I want you to say with me, I am in Christ. Very important. He's going to repeat this over and over. We're more used to hearing, and I'm going to talk about that in just a moment, but look at the, look at the order. In not in Jesus Christ, but in Christ Jesus. Now, we're more used to hearing the phrase Jesus and then Christ. But Paul sometimes flips the order and he uses the phrase Christ Jesus. And there's a reason. Christ Jesus emphasizes Jesus' title of Messiah, followed by his given name, Jesus, which means Yahweh saves so, Christ Jesus means Messiah who saves. Let me ask you, the Jesus you met, is he the Messiah who saves? So, when you say in Christ Jesus, he said you're in the Messiah who saved you. I am so glad to be in the Messiah who saved me. Amen? In the Messiah who saves you. Now, Paul concludes his greeting with the words, grace which is the characteristic Greek greeting combined with peace, which in the Hebrew is shalom, 
the characteristic Hebrew greeting. Now, starting in verse 3, Paul launches into the blessings that are ours. How many of you like to be blessed? Oh, have we been blessed in Jesus? We have been blessed in Christ Jesus. Now, one way to look at this letter is it's a spontaneous outpouring of praise to God. And now that praise begins. Let me show you how. In verse 3, we find contained within that phrase is an enumeration of God's great gifts and blessings to his children. Now, I want you to notice as we look at these in just a moment, what we stepped into when we were saved. We so often just tend to think of salvation, well, yeah, I got my ticket to heaven. When I die, I'm going to heaven. But, oh, we got so much more than that. So much more than that. As a matter of fact, you know what? I'm looking at a bunch of rich people. You're rich in the things of God. And he's about to tell us that. Look closely at the word blessed in verse 3. In verse 3, he says, blessed, and that's eulogatos, meaning blessed or praised, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed eulageo us in Christ with what? Every, say it with me, every spiritual blessing, eulagia, in the heavenly places. Eulagatas, eulageo, eulagia. You think those are all from the same word? Yeah, they're all, they, they all mean blessing. Uh, and, and in this verse, the translations show us this. The verb eulageo means to bestow a favor, to provide with benefits. And the noun eulagia is the act or the benefit of blessing. So what we have here are the blessings coming full circle, beginning with God. God bless you and me with every, not some, not a few, not many, but every spiritual blessing in Christ. Finding their culmination in God, blessed be the God and Father. God blesses us graciously without any compulsion because he wants to. Why did he bless you and me? Because we were uh, nice, because we were loving, because we were talented, because we were whatever? No, no. God blessed us because he chose to. Because he loved us. He blessed us spontaneously. And then it shows us blessing him back spontaneously without any compulsion because we're thankful and we love him. Now, I want you to notice two things about these blessings. They are spiritual blessings. Spiritual blessings. With every spiritual blessing in Christ, God has blessed us. Do you feel like saying right now, I'm blessed? If I've got every spiritual blessing in Christ, then I am blessed. Now, sometimes we don't feel like it, but guess what? We were just told by the eternal word of God that we have been blessed with every single spiritual blessing available in Jesus Christ. That means we are magnanimously blessed. We're blessed in God. With, with what kinds of blessings? With spiritual blessings. Blessings of our spirit by God's spirit. The blessings of knowledge, the blessing of love, the blessing of mercy, the blessing of salvation. The list goes on and on and on. He gives to us every spiritual blessing. God is generous. Aren't you glad he's generous? 
Aren't you glad his mercies are new every single morning and great is his faithfulness? He, he's blessed with every... He's not tight-fisted in giving out his spiritual blessings. They take place in the heavenly realm, not the earthly realm, because they are spiritual blessings. Now, the word Paul uses here can refer either to the natural sky or heavens or to a locale for transcendent things and beings, heavenly, in heaven. And that's the way he uses it right here. We have been blessed by God straight out of heaven. Straight out of heaven. We've been blessed. Ephesians introduces us to a phrase that we see throughout Paul's letters, but especially here. And I want you to say it with me. In Christ. We're in Christ. In the first 14 verses of this letter, the phrase or its equivalent occurs 11 times, almost once in every verse. Let me just read them to you real quickly. It'll bless you. We're called the faithful in Christ Jesus. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He chose us in him. We were freely, uh, he freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption, which he purposed in Christ. He's going to gather up all things in him. In him you and I were chosen. We were the first, Paul says, to hope in Christ. We're included in Christ. And guess what? I like this one. We're marked in him with a seal. You know what the seal is? It's the Holy Spirit. So we are in him. We're marked. I like to say signed, sealed, and delivered. We're already, as far as God's concerned, seated in heavenly places. Where? In Christ Jesus. In Christ. So you hear it over and over again. In Christ, in Christ, in Him, in Christ, in Him, in Christ. I love it. The common Greek preposition, en, en, seems to be used in one of two senses in the phrase in Christ as found in Ephesians. It means in close association with. And it means to be incorporated into Christ. In short, we're blessed by God out of heaven because of who we walk with, who we're in relationship with. You know, when it comes to the blessings of God, it really does matter who you know. And if you want to be blessed by God, get to know his son. It's who you know. That's the message of Ephesians. If you're in him, then you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You are redeemed. You are signed, sealed, and delivered. You are marked by the Holy Spirit. You are purchased. You are sanctified. You are justified. You are glorified in Him. It's who you know. We're joined with Him in a spiritual sense. Our whole life, folks, is in Christ. That's why Paul said, he said, the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who 
died for me and rose again from the dead. Because we're in him. And thank God we're in Jesus. If you're not in Jesus, then you're in the world. You're of the world. You're apart from the blessings of God. You're disconnected from everything that can be had in Christ. So thank God the position we have is in Christ. How many of you are glad you're in Christ tonight? Can we stand together? Thank you, Lord. And how many of you can look back and say, I remember the day and the place and the hour when I got saved? And how many of you can say, from that moment on, since I got in Christ, my life has never been the same? Amen? Amen? Let's go to him with our hands raised and just thank him for the blessings of being in Christ. Father, we thank you right now that we are in you and incorporated into you and of you and from you and you dwell in us. And thank you, Lord, that because of that, we are the recipients of every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And Father, we thank you for it right now. Let's just take a minute and thank the Lord for so great a salvation. So great a salvation. Thank you, Lord. And let's just sing a stanza or two in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Glory to God. my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Sing it again. I surrender all, I surrender all, all to Thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender Amen. Give the Lord a hand of praise tonight. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. All right. I think Brennan has a couple of quick announcements. Yes, I do. Yes, you do. I don't know. <laughs> All right.